If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism True or False? The Agony of Deceit The Origins of Muhammad's Religion Spiritual Warfare Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts or Demonic Spirits? Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story an evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal movement. Mormonism, counterfeit Christianity. Turn or burn. Jehovah's Witnesses, deceived deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website, www.biblequery.org. Once on the homepage, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. and a half million dollars a what's five and a half million dollars a tax deductible gift a tax deductible gift a what's five and a half million dollars i'm not holding hanagraph to a standard he doesn't hold other people to he regularly denounces people on tbn and other venues word faith teachers all the popular televangelists for living a lavish lifestyle at the expense of of ordinary people now, regardless of their, you know, theological quackadoxy on TVN, the principle is still the same and applicable to Hank. Hank lives, uh, to my knowledge, and, and this is public record, so I'm not gossiping, uh, in a 9,200-square-foot, $3.1 million house in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, if you were to buy a house for that price in, say, Newport Beach, California, on the coast, that would get you probably a 1,500 to 1,800 square foot uh, little house on the beach. So you wouldn't be getting a lot, but you're paying for location. But he's got a 9,200 square foot house. Um, now people will say, well, that's because he has 12 kids. Well, most of his kids are all adults and they have been for some time. They're not necessarily living there. He lives on essentially a country club estate. The entrance fee for the country club 
uh, I believe, which is also public record, is about $65,000 for the interest fee, and it's about $1,000 a month. And $65,000 is more than what the average American grosses in a year as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that's real money to the rest to the rest of us poor people. I mean, uh, ordinary people, sixty five k is not chump change. Perry, are you speculating that the reason he moved the Christian Research Institute from California to North Carolina was that his real estate dollars would go farther? Well, it's interesting you say that. That's a possible speculation, and to be fair, I don't want to try and expe- uh, speculate. But I do know that when he was here in California, where I reside, he purchased a home in Coto de Casa, which is prime real estate in Southern California, a brand new home for $731,000 in, I believe, 1992, which is also public record. And you have to understand, $731,000 then was a lot of money. And it was, a, I believe, about a forty. It was a 4,800 or 5,200 square foot house. So it wasn't a small house. And then, of course, he lies about it that he never paid that amount of money for the house. He just flat out lies. There's a YouTube video of it you can see called uh, Did Hank Hanegraaff Lie About His House? Made by another former employee. For the listeners, that YouTube channel is Mr. Call Me the Seeker. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's another former employee. Uh, on that same channel, there is a video of Hanegraaff blatantly reading straight out of Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cult, and passing it off as his own answer on the Bible Answer Man show. Yeah, he does that, and I document that even recently um, in the last three months. For example, he gets a call on justification, and then he just reads off a prepared statement with the appropriate pauses interjected in to make it sound like uh, he's just doing it off the top of his head, but he's just cribbing from this. Uh, so he really doesn't understand the theology. But the point about his lying about the house to callers in the past was is that you can't take him at his word. He, even though he sounds really sincere, how would you ever know if he's telling the truth or not? You know he's demonstratedly lies. You know he misrepresents himself and uses the works of others without attribution. Um, and the most Really, the most troubling thing, in my mind, is there are instances where Hank is essentially selling doctrinal approval for the ability to have speaking opportunities or the exchange of funds. He's selling doctrinal indulgences, for lack of a better term. But anyway, one other thing I'd like to mention to the viewers here is, and this is public record information, uh, but there in North Carolina, in Union County, the tax records show a house that's jointly owned by Paul Young and also Hank Hanegraaff. Of course, as you see there, it says Hendrick Hanegraaff, and of course his wife, Catherine. Now, this house is valued at $1,122,600. And uh, you kind of wonder, it's right there in the same golf community where Hanegraaff's other house is. And for both of them to own a joint property right there in the golf course, and you can see the picture of it right there, how big it is, it, it, it's rather interesting. I wonder why they had to buy a house together. I'm just curious about that. I wasn't able to find that out. But apparently uh, they did it, and here it is. Many of these charismatic and Pentecostal leaders and preachers excel in begging for money. For instance, Creflo Dollar needs $60 million for his own ministry airplane. 
Perhaps Dollar is jealous of other charismatic and Pentecostal leaders who have better airplanes than he has. Let's take a look at these so-called Christian charismatic and Pentecostal faith teachers and see how they line up to what Jesus said about the camel in Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. If all of our existing partners were to sow $300 each from all over the world, we'd be able to acquire this gem in a very, very short period of time. We are believing for 200,000 people to give contributions of 300 U.S. dollars or more to make this a reality. We need your help. And I ask all of our partners globally to get on board with Project G650. For more information on how you can participate in sending Creflo Dollar Ministries with the gospel of grace to the four corners of the earth, visit CreflodollarMinistries.org to make a donation of any amount using your mobile device. Text G650 to 41444. Contrary to that highly publicized prediction, the world did not end over the weekend, which means a number of preachers who live like rock stars will get to continue living the good life. How good? Here's Lisa Guerrero and the iSquad with a look at some who've been preaching prosperity who are living large. Fresh wind! Fresh! They are some of the most popular TV preachers in the country. Here. They urge the faithful followers to donate generously, and in return, the Lord will bring them prosperity. I'm not going to be going to heaven and be broke when I get there. And there's no denying some people have prospered handsomely. Wow! The pastors themselves, they live like rock stars with huge mansions, private jets, and fancy cars. Their lifestyles are so lavish, six of them have been investigated by the U.S. Senate. Like Paula White, who lives in multi-million dollar homes in New York City and Tampa, Florida. And Creflo Dollar, he gets around in style, flying in private jets to preach around the country. He owns this mansion in an exclusive Atlanta suburb. Mr. Dollar, how do you Not one of them would agree to an interview about their opulent lifestyle. How do you justify your million dollar mansions in your jets to all of your donors, sir? Oh, yeah. But when it comes to opulence, few religious leaders compare to Kenneth Copeland. You and I are supposed to always have. To show you his house, we rented this helicopter so you could see his 18,000 square foot mansion valued at over $6 million. He lives in this home outside Fort Worth, Texas. It has beautiful water views and comes complete with a boathouse. But that's not all. Copeland is an avid pilot, and here's his pride and joy, a $20 million Cessna Citation jet. It's the fastest private jet money can buy. He said he needed it to better serve the Lord, and proudly did a flyby for his followers after the church bought it. Shout but it's not just one plane. We found a fleet of planes registered to the church. And you won't catch him waiting in line at the airport because he's got his own, the Kenneth Copeland Airport, located right next to his mansion. I think Copeland is unbelievably greedy. Oli Anthony heads the Trinity Foundation, a religious watchdog group that worked closely with the Senate committee investigating Copeland and other TV preachers. Televangelism alone is at least a two and a half to three billion dollar industry 
untaxed, unregulated. That's right. By law, religious groups like Copeland's are exempt from federal taxes, and they don't have to report how they spend their money to anyone. Amen. Copeland's Church takes in tens of millions a year through donations and selling books and DVDs to his donors. She sent them a lot of money, a, a whole lot of money. When Christy Parker's mother died of cancer, she found diaries that showed her mother sent Copeland most of her life savings, hoping her faith and donations would cure her of her terminal disease. What do you think of Kenneth Copeland's lifestyle? TV doesn't do it justice. Their office furniture is probably worth more than most people's houses. It makes you sick. Oh my. Copeland refused our request for an interview, so we caught up with him at an event in North Carolina. Why you're living such a lifestyle of luxury off of church donations? Ma'am, I don't think we have time for this. Thank you. Why won't you answer our questions? A hotel employee tried to prevent us from taping. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Come here. It's just a simple question, sir. Yes, and I'm going to give you a simple answer. Thank you. My lifestyle follows the scripture we give, we believe, we're open. You have a fleet of private jets. Why is that necessary? You're a minister. How many private jets do you have? Right after that, he walked away. Although Copeland says he cooperated with the Senate investigation, the Senate committee disagreed, saying only two television preachers did, Joyce Myers and Benny Hinn. And the committee recommended that the IRS investigate further. A prophet began to prophesy, make me a cake. She's got to do something. I'm telling you, you got to do something. I like a thousand dollar vow because I like, don't like half-hearted people, lukewarm. Just wait, I'll do a little. I like a thousand dollar vow of faith. That spirit of poverty is broken when you get to that phone and say, put me down as one that's going to give $5,000. Tonight, I want to speak that hundredfold increase. If you will call right now and you will say to your counselor whenever they answer the phone, I want to be involved in the hundredfold. I want the hundredfold prayer prayed over my giving tonight. I will, at the time that God leads me to do it, I will lay hands on every one of those cards and will speak the hundredfold increase into your life. Remember, the word to say is the hundredfold. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge of their covenant with me, saith the Lord. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to the Spirit of God tonight? Amen. You don't have to be poor. Jesus said, I am anointed to preach the gospel the spirit of the lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor hey poor you don't have to be poor anymore you don't think these apostles didn't walk around with money i mean they had money i'm just thank god that i saw this and gave up the denominational line and got on god's line before i starved me and all my family to death Paul had the kind of money that people, <laughs> that government officials would, would block up justice to try to get a bribe out of old Paul. Jesus had a nice house, a big house. John 19 tells us that Jesus wore designer clothes. <laughs> uh, well, what else are you going to call it? Now, let, uh, designer clothes, that's blasphemy. No, that's what we call them today. I mean, you didn't get the stuff he wore off the rack. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all deal. 
Uh-uh, uh-uh. No. No, this was custom stuff. Bible said that he had a treasurer, a treasury, they called it the bag, that they had one man who was the treasurer named Judas Iscariot, and the rascal was stealing out of the bag for three and a half years, and nobody knew that he was stealing. You know why? Because there was so much in it, he couldn't tell, nobody could tell that anything was missing. If he had three oranges in the bottom of the bag and he stole two of them, don't tell me, you wouldn't know that something was missing. (laughs) That's the Bible! It's the word of God. There is prosperity. Not only is worrying a sin, but being poor is a sin when God promises prosperity. To have holes in the birds there, the nest have their, uh, uh, the birds there have the nest. The son of man hath nowhere to lay his head is not a declaration that Jesus didn't have a house. It's simply, if you'll read a few verses above that, it meant that the Samaritans canceled the meeting that he was going to, if you remember the account. <laughs> And uh, in those days, there wasn't a Holiday Inn on every corner. You didn't just, you know, check into the hotel. If, you, if your advance men got canceled, then you walked to the next meeting and had to take up there. And it's, it's very clear that he had a house. Uh, uh, the, the Bible states he had a house. And look at these eyes. I have never lied to you. Never. That is glory. That is glory. That... Whether he's at home or traveling. Benny Hinn can often be seen in the finest places. Hinn is a regular at Beverly Hills clothing stores like Versace, Louis Vuitton, and Bijan, where Hinn's name is on the window along with princes and heads of state. Then there are the cars and the mansion. Hinn has acknowledged he's paid a salary of somewhere between half a million and a million dollars a year. He also gets royalties from the sales of his books but there are questions raised by some of the purchases we found in those expense documents. For example, in just over four weeks in 2003, we found six separate charges at high-end clothing stores, totaling more than $6,000, all charged on the ministry's corporate card. Remember, while he's at a crusade, Pastor Benny stays in presidential and royal suites. The ministry told us that every single trip made by Pastor Benny is approved by his executive board. But we were intrigued by what appear to be stops made by Pastor Benny at resorts and spas around the world on his way to and from crusades. The ministry called these stops layovers. Now for most of us travelers, a layover means long hours waiting for a connection in an unfamiliar airport, maybe an overnight stay at a low-rent hotel, But remember, Pastor Benny travels in the ministry's private jet and sets his own schedule. So consider Benny Hinn's version of a layover. On his way home to California from this crusade in Colombia, the documents show and the hotel confirmed for us, Pastor Benny stopped at this resort in Cancun, Mexico. He stayed in the presidential suite there that cost the ministry $2,684 for one night. The trip was described as a layover. And here's another example of what may happen to some of the money people give to Benny Hinn for God's work. After crusades in Russia and Sweden in July of 2003, Pastor Benny apparently didn't get on his private jet, fly west, and go home. Instead, he flew from Sweden south to Italy, then back north to England with an entourage that included his son, his daughter, and her fiancé. There were expensive meals, like this one for more than $900 in Italy, and one at this Lebanese restaurant in London for more than $1,700. Spirits, come against 
against this child of God. I break your power. Go! 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 In Jesus' name, loose them. Arms and legs are going to grow out the right length and begin to move around and work. Hallelujah! And supernatural money is going to start coming into people's lives. In Jesus' name, I'm going to beat the devil off of you today. To a darkened world today, but he's waiting for you and me to say, Oh, that spoken word is the key. Speak that thing. Decree that thing, and it shall come to pass. Whatever it is in your life that you're decreeing. I'm sitting on the platform trembling. And I said, I claim $150 this week. I'm just going to be there one week. <laughs> Satan, take your hand off my money. Go minister in spirits and cause the money to come. You're saying this out loud now to, the, loud. to the church? No, nobody there. I'm out there. Oh, just in the church by yourself. By okay. Myself. Okay. Went on back over the house, laid down, took me now. That, that says it. I don't said don't pray, so I don't pray. You spoke it. I, I've never, I've never, for me personally, I've never prayed about finances and again. That day to the day. Oh, he he claimed the amount you need, though? Yeah, I yeah. claim it, but I don't pray like we used to pray. Now, I know the heretic hunters are going to have me on the spit barbecue for this, but let me tell you. You didn't get into church in the Old Testament unless you had a gift. You didn't get through the door. You were not welcome into the church, into the tabernacle, into the temple. You, that was the price of admission. You came to God only if you had a gift in your hand for Him. Do you know that God never blesses sheep before He blesses shepherds? Shepherds get it first, then the sheep get it. Because sheep follow shepherds. If we, if, if we shepherds follow sheep, we're going to have poo on, on, on our shoes. <laughs> so, so, Is that an Israeli word? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so, so the sheep must follow the shepherds. <laughs> and God always blesses the shepherds first. So a pastor can never see his church prosper if he's poor. See? Never. Well, it's not in the Bible. Heretic hunters, of course, would say, now Jesus would have healed that servant anyway, whether he'd have built a synagogue well, or not. But they probably wouldn't even say it on television, because they can just, they can barely keep the rent paid on the building, much less shoot up satellite, because what they're doing don't work. Poverty can take your, make your word be ignored. You want to talk about a blessing? It's a blessing whenever you start to tell somebody how to get saved, and they sit down and they want to hear it quite something else when they look at you and said, man, I don't want what you've got. You saved? Wow. Well, let me tell you something. I don't want to live like you live and have to drive around like you drive around. Listen to it. Your words are not heard when you walk in insufficiency, when you walk in poverty. Now, I can get a call from somebody. You know, Brother John, I want to tell you that I, I don't think it's right to be preaching about money and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I don't have any money and I'm getting long. I'm not going to listen to that very long. But you let somebody call me up, you let somebody of import, you let one of these, you let a businessman call me up and say, Brother John, I want to tell you how God blessed me, and I want to put some finances into the kingdom of God. Folks, we're in the combat zone. Yes. Not only are we going to get the wealth, we're going to strip it. Amen. Meaning that leave them.
none of it, that the church going to have all of it. We're going to be in control of the financial system of this earth. Praise God. That came from the Holy Ghost. Ha, ha, ha. That came from the Holy Ghost. We are going to be in control of the financial system of the earth. We are going to be in control of the financial system of the earth. We are going to be in control of the money supply. Now, now, this, you, you have to read this, and I don't have time to go into it, but just listen to this, because you're coming into a lot of money. You're coming into a lot of money, and Satan is coming after it, because you're coming into a lot of money. You're coming into a lot of money, and Satan is coming after it. Who is the Lord going to pay? Me. Now, where am I going to get it from to give to them? No, no. Uh, uh, no don't mess with me now. Where am I? He? Who is he going to give it to? Why is he going to give it to me? An insatiable appetite they have for money. But that's because this is their ministry. Night and day, gathering it up for a people who will be used to bless the nations of the earth. Isn't that wonderful? So the wealth will come from the sinners of this world. And you and I have been chosen for this hour. So you are going to be a distributor in these last days. You're going to be a spender. For you to get what God has for you, especially if you're going to become a billionaire. Especially if you're going to become a billionaire. Now listen. I want you to release a prosperity anointing, and if God talks to you, feel free. Okay? I want you to release a prosperity anointing, and if God talks to you, feel free. Okay? Pray right now, let there be a prosperity anointing that be released unto your people right now. Let now, Father. I pray right now, let there be a prosperity anointing that be released unto your people right now. Let there be prosperity that be released right now to your people. Let there be prosperity that pours into his hands right now. Father, I pray right now you release it right now. In Jesus' name, Father God, I pray right now like you declare in Deuteronomy that that seventh year release, the law of the release. Father, I pray right now that you release finances, you release miracles, you release creative miracles, you release money appearing in people's bank account. You release, oh, that you release finances, you release miracles. You release creative miracles. You release money appearing in people's bank account. You release all oh, that you release finances. You release miracles. You release creative miracles. You release money appearing in people's bank account. You release, oh my God, my God, there will be 35,000 that's about to appear on Tuesday for someone. I'm, I, you release it right now. You release it right now. Give them no complications. Give them no situations. Dear woman, you're standing up. 
uh, 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 God's going to do it for you. God's going to release it for you. God's going to give you the money that he owes you. Uh, God's going to do it. Jen, get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Jen, 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 Jennifer. Listen, it's done in Jesus' name. Write down what you're looking for God to do in 2010. And God says, watch me release it in this season. Thus saith the Spirit. And thus saith the Spirit. And thus saith the Spirit. And thus saith the Spirit. What's five and a half million dollars? What's five and a half million dollars? A tax-deductible gift. A tax-deductible gift. What's five and a half million dollars? We have done an extensive video. It's over five and a half hours long mm. uh, on YouTube. And here's this long video that we put out on Hank Henry. It's already got over 200,000 views. And uh, it's called Hank Hanegraaff, Walter Martin's Greedy Judas, the Fake Bible Answer Man. And from my perspective, Hanegraaff was never the legitimate heir to Walter Martin's ministry. Walter Martin had a good evangelistic Bible-believing ministry dealing with uh, Christian apologetics and the cults. And now it's been taken over by someone who I would consider to be a cultist. <laughs> so so that's, the, that's the amazing thing about it. Here's the original book from 1960 written by Walter Martin, of the, the original Bible Answer Man. There is this Walter Martin Christian Research Institute, mm -hmm. the whole bit. And... Uh, Hank Hanegraaff never told anybody that this book even existed or the other stuff we already exposed in the previous shows that you and I had done on this subject. But I've got, I'm one of the few that have an actual original copy, so I'm kind of blessed to have that. It's hard to get these things anymore. But what we did to remedy that, that situation, what we have here on these videos, just to go down the rest of this list, Virgin Mary, Seven Steps to Godhood versus Catholic Dogma, exposed by Bible answer man Walter Martin. We showed how Walter Martin exposed how they made Mary, you know, through these seven steps into a goddess. Uh, but to remedy the problem that no one can get this book. Now, Rob, you weren't in this video, mm -hmm. but... Uh, I was, and my video guy did the audio, so he's, a, he's got an excellent uh, narrator's voice. So we did Walter's book and called it, we did the whole book in, in audio form with the pages on the screen. The Roman Catholic Church in History by Walter Martin, number one, Pope Peter, question mark, Catholic tradition, and you can also see on your screen the other one we did, the Roman Catholic Church in History by Walter Martin, Number three, Mary, and four, confession, mass, purgatory, etc. Uh, so these, these, these are available particularly on Sermon Audio and YouTube. But on Sermon Audio, you can get a free transcript of the whole book. So if you can't get this book, you can get a free transcript of the whole thing by just going to Sermon Audio and clicking on the View Transcript, and it'll be right there in your hands. From here, let's begin with an interview that host Paul Vandrotti had with author and researcher Jay Howard concerning the fake Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff. Very few people know much about Hank Hanegraaff, the so-called Bible answer man. If you're one of those people who knows nothing about him, then you're in luck. I have on the phone with me the man who literally wrote the book on Hanegraaff. The book is called Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. The author is Jay Howard, founder of the Religious Research Project in Logan, Ohio. 
Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's nice to be with you. Jay, I want to start with the subtitle of your book. The subtitle is Hank Hanegraaff and His Takeover of the Christian Research Institute. Let's just abbreviate Christian Research Institute to CRI for the rest of the show. Sure. Okay, Jay, the guy who founded the Christian Research Institute is actually not Hank Hanegraaff, but no one would know that if you went to the website of CRI, would you? No, uh, I talked to a lot of people over the years who think that Hank Hanegraaff is the founder of CRI, and uh, in fact, to kind of give you a little a little idea of this, uh, back in 2002, a friend of mine was doing a radio interview with him, and uh, they he, they were talking about the Bible Antman program itself, and uh, he said, well, who, you know, who is the the, the uh, radio fellow? I asked him who is the uh, the, the original Bible answer man. And uh, Hank answered something like, uh, well, there's been many men behind the microphone, but I'm the current Bible answer man. And this is a, a pattern that he had for many years where he went out of his way not to mention Walter Martin because Walter Martin was the Bible answer man. He started the show back in, the, I think, the 60s. And uh, so... Um, and he's the founder of CRI as well. Yeah, CRI. He started the CRI in his basement in New Jersey uh, back in 1960. Uh, they moved out to California in about 74, 75, when uh, Martin realized that all the major cult issues going on in the, in the United States were kind of coming out of California and going east. Imagine that. So, cults coming from California. Who'd have thunk it? And so he kind of thought that, you know, being at the heart of the cult world would be the best place to be for a ministry like CRI, which is heavy into uh, cult apologetics. So they moved out there in 73 and, and uh, or 74, 75 time period. And, uh, of course, Martin, uh, you know, ran the ministry for, you know, from 1960 till 89 when he died. And, unfortunately, he didn't really leave uh, a will or anything about, you know, who would succeed him. And so it was kind of up in the air as to who would take, um, Martin, or yeah, Martin's place if he was to retire or die. And so, who did take his place? Well, it was obviously Hank Canareff. Um I remember uh, getting a newsletter from CRI um, in '89 or late '89, early '90 that had a little blurb in the middle of it talking about a guy named Hank Canareff who was going to take the ministry forward into the future. And at that time, I had never heard of him. I mean, I know a lot of people in the cult and apologetics world because I'm in this field myself. And I had honestly never heard of Hank Hanegraaff. And I just assumed he was some kind of a, you know, some seminarian that Walter Martin was impressed with and kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I, I, I knew nothing about him at that point. Okay, you thought he was a seminarian, which is what most people would have thought. But in fact, your book says that he was really just some kind of a bean counter there at CRI. Yeah, if you, um, I, I got a hold of his uh, resume for for the book, and the book talks about you know different ministries that he supposedly worked for. He helped raise money for them and this kind of thing. Uh, there is no mention in his bio that uh, CRI had that said anything about him being any kind of a theologian, having any seminary or Bible college training uh, in the field of cults and philosophy and apologetics. There's nothing like that in his biographical uh, statement. So what was he doing at CRI? Was he a well, 
I think you said in the book that he was a fundraiser, and that's why Walter Martin brought him onto the board. Yeah, see, Walter Martin um, uh, would go to a church called uh, Mount Perrin uh, Church of God in Atlanta, Georgia, where the pastor really liked him about once a year. And at that time, uh, Hank Hanegraaff was attending Mount Perrin in um, in Atlanta, and that's when he first met Walter Martin. He started talking to him and you know, kind of promoting himself to Walter Martin. And uh, so they, they met a couple of years before he got involved at CRI, back in the 80s. Okay, so he met Hank Hanegraaff in Atlanta, and then that's where he decided to bring him on board as a fundraiser. So Hank Hanegraaff ended up getting on, onto the board, and I read in the book that the board comprised all of three people aside from Walter Martin. That's rather unusual. Yeah, from what I could see, for several years, Martin kept a very lean board, uh, usually four or five people, uh, hardly ever more than five. And at the time of his death in June of 89, there was only um, three other men on the board besides himself. And Hank Hanegraaff had been one of those men. Jay, the book gives a rather scandalous description of some of the shenanigans that went on at Walter Martin's funeral. Why don't you uh, sketch that funeral for us and let us know what happened there? Okay. Well, you know, the family and the, the, the board members were in a room. If you've, ever been, if you've been part of a funeral before, there's always a room where the people involved in the funeral, the relatives, that kind of thing, they sit in this room until they're called you know, to go to, to sit in the front of the church. And so uh, Walter Martin's immediate family, his board, uh, John Ankerberg, Hank Hanegraaff, they were in this room together. It was a handful of people, literally. And um, uh, a few minutes before they were to be ushered into the church, uh, Hank Hanegraaff approached Darlene Martin, who was uh, Walter Martin's widow, and asked to see her funeral notes. So she, you know, she was in a state of shock, and she wasn't going to doubt the guy because she trusted him. So he, she handed his notes to uh, uh, Hank Hanegraaff, and Hanegraaff took them to another man uh, that she remembers um, handing the notes to this other man, and he wrote something on the paper uh, on the bottom of her funeral notes. And so he came back a couple minutes later and said, read this note um, you know, when, once you finish reading your prepared uh, typed-out speech. And so she just tucked it in there at the bottom and, and took it with her. And she, when she got to uh, her prepared statement, uh, you know, typed out statement, she read that about her husband and his ministry. And then uh, I listened to the audio tapes of the funeral. And right when she hits this prepared statement that he had written down, I mean, not, not that he had written down, but somebody else had written for her in, in, in uh, you know, cursive writing, she started to, to not, she started to stammer a little bit because she was, trying to read it for the first time in her life. And the, um, the note, that, and I, I have this note because she sent me a photocopy of, the, of, the, uh, of this handwritten note that was at the bottom of her statement. It's also it reproduced in how, the book. Yeah, it, it's in the book. And uh, uh, in that, she started talking about how, you know, uh, her and Walter had talked many times about who would take over CRI once he died or retired. And then, then she, she launched into this, you know, and that man is Hank Hanegraaff, and we thank God for Hank Hanegraaff, and Hank Hanegraaff is a great guy, and he's going to do this, he's going to do that, and, you know. So it was really kind of a, a mini-commercial for Hank Hanegraaff that she had not even prepared. It was, 
Hanegraaff's own statement that she that he literally wanted read into the funeral notes, you know, in, into the recordings and the videotaping of the funeral, so that it would appear that she was giving her her her, her imprimatur, her her pledge of of loyalty to Hank, that he was the man that that Walter Martin had chosen. Now, I I interviewed Darlene Martin several times over the course uh, of putting this book together, and she told me something very interesting that. When Walter Martin would come home at night, you know, from CRI, you know, he wanted to be just father and a husband. He, he he said, she said that he never would talk about what's going on in the ministry, who we're hiring, who we're firing, nothing about the stuff they're going to be doing. And so she didn't know anything about Hanegraaff. There was no talking, you know, in bed, hanging around with with uh, Hank, with Walter Martin, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, talking about what would happen if he died. That was all made up. Hanegraaff just created this, this whole image out of whole cloth to make it look like there had been thought put into his being chosen as, as uh, the president, when in actuality there there was no advanced uh, warning that he would become president of CRI. Just a classic example of opportunism. Yeah, he he had, he had this, uh, I don't know, I think he started building this case for himself in his head, because he got on the board of CRI in February of 1987, which is about a year and a half or so before Walter Martin died. And um, so he was on the board with those other men, uh, Stan Tonneson and Everett Jacobson, and then Walter Martin. So he'd only been on the board for a little over a year and a half when uh, Martin died unexpectedly of you know diabetic uh, complications. Now, just to set the tenor of what Hanegraaff's regime was going to be like when he took over the Christian Research Institute. His first action as president apparently was to hike his salary? That was one of the very first, yeah. Um, Walter Martin, at the time of his death, was making the princely sum of $40,000 a year, which is really nothing, you know, when you, when you think about being the head of an organization. And the first thing that, that Hanegraaff asked the board for was a $20,000 raise from 40 to 60,000. That was his first move within the first month of him being there. Ladies and gentlemen, the book is called Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man. Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. The author is Jay Howard. Jay, I want to read a quote from your book because I think that it starkly contrasts exactly what kind of ministry Hank Hanegraaff was going to run, and I think it starkly contrasts his character with that of his far worthier predecessor, Walter Martin. The quote's found on page 59. Quote, From July 1989 until 1995, over 100 people were either fired or felt compelled to quit under Hank Hanegraaff. All of this in only the first six years of Hank Hanegraaff's Machiavellian control of CRI. But Hanegraaff's presidency, which would be marked by avarice and an almost maniacal need for self-promotion, had just begun. There is no record of Walter Martin firing staff during his tenure at CRI over a 30-year period. End of quotation. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I didn't know Walter Martin. I mean, I've met him several times, but I didn't know him, like, really well. Uh, I don't think he could have picked me out in a crowd, to tell you the truth. But he was always a very jovial, happy, um, lovable fellow. And I've talked to you know many of his employees, you know, since you know after the book came out and before the book came out. And nobody was you know saying he was tyrannical that he had a bad temper or anything. So 
it's hard for me to believe that Martin ever, you know, fired pretty much anybody unless they they had some kind of a real need to be fired. Uh, a bit, but when when Hanegraaff came in, he was so insecure. He didn't have, you know, he had no real apologetic cult philosophy education. He had a high school diploma and quite a bit of college at Calvary College or yeah, Cal- Calvin Calvary College. College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, I think he wrote Calvin was, College. Yeah, it was a Dutch Reform school, and so, but the transcripts show that he never even graduated from a Bible college. He, so, he left uh, short of graduation. So he just meandered his way through college without even finishing, whereas the researchers at CRI had to have degrees, and he was going to be president of all of these degreed people. Yeah, at, at the time that uh, Hanegraaff took over, uh, it was a requirement that if you wanted to be a research person, you know, I'm not talking about a secretary or something, but if you wanted to be a research person, you had to have at least a bachelor's degree working on a master's, etc., and, uh, you know, if you had a high school diploma, that wouldn't cut it as a research person. So, yeah, Hanegraaff came in and took over a, a very highly educated ministry with less than a college degree. And that's one of my points in my book that I make that I, I you know, I reason that a man like Hanegraaff, who knew pretty much all the, you know, evangelical scholars of the day, you know, the most brilliant Christian minds of, the, of you know, of America at that time, if he was picking a, a successor, he would not have picked a, high, you know, a person with a high school diploma. I mean, I don't care how how nice the guy was; it just wouldn't be part of his uh, makeup to pick a person with with limited knowledge in the field that you know CRI was involved in. And he wouldn't pick somebody who would alienate everyone on the staff and then go on to alienate many other people in the Christian world. Jay, we've been talking about the people whom Hanegraaff terminated at CRI. On pages 39 to 43 of your book, you give a list, necessarily a partial list, but still a long list, of some of the people whom Hanegraaff fired. Let's go through some of these and just find out what the reasons were behind the firings. Uh, uh, Jay, tell me about Robert Bowman. Well, Rob Bowman I've known for quite a while. Um, you know, He told me about his CRI experience with Hank Hanegraaff that... Um, I think the the turning point for Rob was um one day Hank Hanegraaff was on the um Hank yeah Hank Hanegraaff was on the Bible Answer Man program and he was quoting from a, what's called a CRI perspective I believe which is like a one page sheet on a group. And let's make sure we're clear and, this is after the death of Walter Martin. Oh yeah, this yeah. is after the death of Walter Martin. And Rob Bowman had written that particular perspective, you know, it's like the one page uh, outline of the group's uh, theology and history that kind of thing. And according to Rob, what he told me was uh, Hanegraaff read that on the air as if he had written it, took kind of he took credit for writing it. And um, Rob Bowman uh, went into his office a little later after the show and said, "You know, you can't do that because that I wrote that. I mean, I know I wrote that because that's my my writing." And uh, you know, Hanegraaff sort of protested a little bit. And uh, it wasn't until a week later, um, Bowman kind of found out what happened, he was fired. He was fired from CRI and told they had a financial uh, problem that month and they had to let some people go. Now, Rob actually went back into the numbers of that month and found out that, in in truth, the the giving for that month uh, was actually higher than normal for the year, and he was the only one fired. So it wasn't like 
a, a massive group of people let go on that particular week. And, you know, the people you don't let go when you're having trouble are the people that keep you, you know, keep your ministry going. The research department, he was a researcher, one of the top researchers at that time. And so they fired him. And it, so it was a retribu- retribution firing for doubting or challenging Hank Hanarath. Jay, tell me about Craig and Lisa Hawkins. Well, Lisa, I think she worked in the, um, she was a secretary there, I believe. But Craig was one of the senior researchers. In fact, um, many times when uh, Walter Martin was out of town for a weekend or something or for a couple days, um, he had Craig fill in um, as the voice of the Bible Answer Man for a day or two. And I've, uh, Craig's another one of those people I have met in the past. Uh, I don't really hang out with him too much anymore. He lives um, in Santa Ana, California, I believe. But, um, you know, he's he's a very gifted speaker. Um, he has a background in philosophy and cults and world religions. Uh, and so, you know, he was really good at getting behind a microphone and taking calls and questions because he had such a broad knowledge of the Bible and philosophy and Christian apologetics, something that Walter Martin had. And so Craig Hawkins spent many, many uh, days uh, being the voice by Lansman when Walter Martin died uh, after, and you know, there was like Ken Samples, Rob Bowman, Paul Cardin, there was about a half dozen men that filled in, but Craig did it a lot. And to to be the president of CRI, you'd have to be the voice of the Bible Answer Man. I mean, it's, you know, you, you couldn't be the president of CRI and not be the voice of the Bible Answer Man program. So, Hanegraaff understood that he had to do something to get rid of Craig Hawkins. In fact, uh, he told people uh, before the firings and after the firings that his wife Kathy uh, had had a, like a dream or something, and God had told her that Craig Hawkins had he was like demon possessed. Have thou nothing to do with that righteous man? In other words. Yeah, and so they fired uh, Craig Hawkins, or for, I should say they forced him out, uh, made it terribly uncomfortable for him to be there, because, see, see uh, Hanegraaff, again, he needed to be the Bible answer man voice, and uh, Craig Hawkins was probably the one man who could stand between him and that chair. So he got rid of Craig Hawkins. He really, I mean, he feared Craig Hawkins in a sense, because most of these men, uh, you know, he, he was, I think he was living in fear that they would figure out how bad he was, how l- limited uh, background he had in cults and a philosophy and, and the Bible and everything else. And so he, he little by little got rid of pretty much everybody who had a real uh, you know, background in these kinds of things, who had studied them, gone to college for these issues. And so little by little, most of the men uh, were, were sort of moved out of uh, CRI or, or outright fired. And... Um, uh, Craig Hawkins was one of those. Jay, let's switch gears here from firing and talk about hiring. Tell me about this Paul Young character whom Hank Hanegraaff brought on board. Well, Paul Paul Young was a Canadian. He met him up in Canada because there's, there's a thing called uh, CRI Canada, which uh, was started about 10 years before Walter Martin died. And so Hanegraaff was, went up there after Martin died to check out CRI Canada, met with John Teeb, the director of CRI Canada, and um, he ended up he ended up you know firing John Teeb and the whole staff that was up there because uh, they were not too happy with the way he was 
running things, and they were, became very concerned. So John Teebs was let go, and it was a, kind of a bloodbath up there. But he he did meet Paul Young. Was, they must have hit it off somehow because he he invited him to come down to Southern California to be the uh, you know to be his his uh, right hand man you know to be the vice president of CRI. The only problem was at that time Paul Young was married to a woman by the name of Estelle, and he literally picked up, moved down to Southern California, left his wife in in Canada, left her with the bills and you know all the, the problems of what happens when you you know you get you leave your spouse. Uh, she called down to CRI to talk to Hank Hanegraaff privately about the desertion of her husband to, to work for CRI. And she told, you know, she went public on this, and she said that Hanegraaff would never take her phone calls and never would help her to reconcile with her husband. So he literally took on a man who had abandoned his family. And I do believe the Bible says a man who will not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Well, you gotta... Exactly. I mean, you have a man, the head of the CRI, you know, this Christian research organization, that is actually, uh, you know, basically breaking with biblical statements. I mean, you know, you don't you, you don't help a man or a woman uh, flee their family when they're responsible to their mate. You know, to, I mean, this is you know, this was a marriage. This wasn't you know, boyfriend girlfriend. This was a marriage, and Hanegraaff completely disregarded that that relationship and took Paul on and left. His, his ex-wife to flounder by herself. The name of the book, ladies and gentlemen, is Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. The author is Jay Howard. Jay is on the phone with me right now. There was uh, a good friend of Walter Martin's by the name of Tony Collarill, Collarill, perhaps. And I interviewed him back in, I think, 2001, 2002, when I was working on the book, Research. And uh, he told me a little interesting story. He said that um, they had a dedication of their building. The CRI had a dedication of their building in Irvine, California. And uh, Tony Colorell came out to um, attend the, um, you know, the, the little shindig. And while he was there, Hank or Walter Martin had invited him to go to a Baptist church with him to, you know, because Walter Martin had been booked to speak there. And uh, I think it was in, like, uh, I want to say Garden Grove or Garden City, one of those towns. So they get in the car, and they're driving driving away. And uh, Tony told me that uh, Walter, you know, he was asking him about, you know, how things are going at CRI. And, and Walter started, like, waxing eloquent about several men there that had, you know, sort of uh, showed themselves to be superior uh, you know, Christian leaders there. He mentioned Paul Carden, he said. He mentioned uh, Craig Hawkins by name. He might have mentioned, like, uh, uh, Rich Paul, who was there uh, for a time. And, uh, you know, he was talking about all these young men who he had hired to be researchers at CRI. And it just so happened that driving to uh, the church engagement, the man driving was Hank Hanegraaff, you know, and he was behind the wheel. Now, uh, I asked him, did he say anything about Hank Hanegraaff? Did he say how wonderful he was and this is going to be my next president of CRI or whatever if something happened to me? And um, Tony said no. I mean, the guy drove the car and there was no you know, extolling of Hank Hanegraaff's credentials to him. 
Now, the reason this is significant is because Tony Collarill, and I've heard this from other people, they were like really good friends. I mean, Tony and Walter were, were good friends. They've been friends for many, many years. Back in New Jersey. Back in New Jersey, because that's where Hank, uh, Walter Martin was originally from. And, uh, you know, if you're going to be driving, uh, you're going to be driving to this church thing, and, you know, you're at the dedication, and you've come all this way to, to see your friend Walter, uh, you'd think this would be a great time to discuss with him and say, hey, you know who's driving this car right now? The man who's going to take over for me after I die or if I retire, uh, Hank Canagraf. He's the man, and he's driving this car right now. And this is why he's so wonderful. And But he didn't say one word about Hank Canagraf. And to me, that would have been, been the perfect time to discuss the future with his friend Tony. And I just think that's indicative of of one of the reasons why uh, Hanegraaff is not the pre- or should not have been the president because, you know, Walter Martin has said nothing about him to to anybody that I can find, uh, you know, in, in public or private. Uh, I interviewed many people, and none of them had any advanced no- knowledge of Hank Hanegraaff. Uh, going to be the next president. It just it just wasn't in the cards. So the men whom Walter Martin mentored and trained all got canned, whereas the chauffeur slash fundraiser is the one who ended up becoming president of CRI and the Bible Answer Man. Exactly. Yeah, Jay, you've got a priceless quote about this on page 29. I want to read it. Quote, Hank was given authority by the board to build the BAM program by adding or subtracting radio stations in order to make the BAM program profitable. This, again, was only a business-related project. He was not being asked to appear on BAM and had never spent any time on the radio show at that point. To put this into perspective, it would be analogous to a business manager at a hospital being offered the position as the head of thoracic medicine. It would never happen because the manager has no training in that field, end quote. Uh, one of um, Martin's board members, his name was Stan Thomas, and he just died here a couple months ago. Uh, he was a great guy. I mean, I, I met with him um, in 2008. I, I flew down to Fort Myers, Florida, uh, to uh, spend a week with him and his wife. And uh, Stan had, had saved pretty much everything that he was ever given from Sierra. He had... He had notes and he had uh, minutes from board meetings. He had, I mean, boxes and boxes of stuff. And so I was able to take all the board minutes that Stan still possessed uh, at CRI or from CRI home with me. And I brought, took a big, thick briefcase with me and stuffed full of notes. And I took it home. And in the, in the book itself, I quote from several board minutes of different years that that Hanegraaff was on. He was on there from February of 87 until he took over in 89, June of 89. Now, if you read these board minutes, you'll notice that there is any time that Hanegraaff speaks up in a board meeting, it's related to business, you know, fundraising, going on a cruise, you know, raising money to go on a cruise for CRI people or whatever it was. There was all kinds of projects and things he talked about, but he was never talking about, you know, being the BAM guy or being a theologian working with the uh, research crew, he was always talking about raising money, cutting costs, very uh, accounting-related stories. Yeah, he was just counting the shekels, in other words. Yeah. Now, the, some the, people may be puzzled at this point, because if you listen to Hanegraaff on the radio now, he's a smooth operator. And I think just by dint of longevity, um, he has become so. But that wasn't always the case. When he first took over on the Bible Answer Man... It was a daily disaster. 
And Jay, you have a letter here that you've reproduced in the book by Michael Stevens, former director of broadcast media at CRI. I just want to read a couple of the the choice uh, sentences from this, and you can jump in at any point. Sure. Okay, here we are on page 53. Quote, never did a BAM broadcast go by without Hank rewording a caller's question to enable himself to answer the reworded question. Hank would usually ask, does that help? Or something along those lines. And the response by the caller was often something like, well, actually, in which Hank would say, well, stay on the line and we'll send you some information. And not ever really answering the question, probably due to ignorance, end quote. Moving down, quote, There were also two of the unfortunate things that happened on the Bible Answer Man quite regularly. The first is this. Hank would walk into the studio, briefly scan the pre-screened call sheets, and then scramble to find a quick-fix answer. Oftentimes, he would ask Ron Rhodes or Bob Lyle what this or that word meant, or what that cult believes. Some of the questions to which Hank had no answer were frighteningly simple. I must say that he didn't always do this. The sad fact is that when he didn't, the answer would often be wrong, end quote. All right, so he's depending on Ron Rhodes, uh, Ron Rhodes and Bob Lyle there, two of the men we said earlier were probably qualified to sit in as the actual Bible answer man. Yeah. Also, I've talked to a couple of the radio people there, and they said they had created, they created a book with, you know, tabs, so you could open the book, to a tab, you know, say uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and they would have like statements in there about Jehovah's Witnesses, so he could pull information. Now, uh, one of the one of the radio guys, I want to say it was Michael, but I'm not sure who it was that, had told me that he had um, he had actually given him a him a device to use on the air. He gave Hank Hanegraaff a device where uh, he'd be reading something off the page, and he'd stammer and stop and make it look like he was pulling it all from memory. And so when he would be quoting a, a source from Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or something, he was trying to make it sound like he was, you know, he had this already memorized, he would stop and stammer and like he was like fighting to pull it out of his memory. And so he would use these little devices to make it make himself look good on, on the air. The name of the book is Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. The author is Jay Howard. You know, he positioned himself, he was a vice president on the board, which means nothing in real terms, because I've sat on boards, and just because you're the vice president of a, of a ministry board doesn't mean that you have the, the knowledge to actually sit in that seat in the real ministry world. Um, that's just a position that he held on the board. And, uh, you know, he may have worked with, um, talked Everett Jacobson and Stan into letting him be the president for a while because he thought, well, maybe... If I, I, he may have said, "Well, you know, I'll be the president for a while until we can find somebody to take my place." Just a I'll, caretaker I, I, president. Just to keep it going. Now, I think it's worth noting too that um, you know they didn't wait until weeks or months after the funeral to make him president. Hank Hanegraaff called a special meeting at 8:45 in the morning, the day of the funeral, and had them vote on his presidency. Now, who 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 needs to have a new president? You know, the morning of the funeral, but he, see, I believe that he was so he was struggling to consolidate his power as soon as he possible, so nobody could, you know, could, um, you know, could fight him on it. And then, of course, he had John Ingerberg during the funeral announce that he was unanimously voted on as president of CRI or for CRI 
in the morning. And but you you just don't have a a business meeting the morning of the funeral of the founder. It's just it's unheard of. And unanimously voted by three people, Hanegraaff yeah, being one of the three people. Yeah, exactly. Now and so yeah, I mean the, everything he did was seemingly calculated to consolidate his power as quickly as he could. You know, as much as that makes the steam come out of my ears, I got to admit there's a part of me that admires that level of piracy. Just being able to pull off a feat like that, there's something, I mean, I mean it's admirable in a deplorable way if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the, we call it, you know, uh, we call it chutzpah, you know that the the Yiddish term chutzpah. Oh yeah. He he, did, he had a lot of chutzpah just to think that he could even try to make this work. But as you mentioned a few minutes ago, He's not an original person. He could never have started the CRI himself. So the only way he could make it in the world um, was to, you know, take over an existing ministry. And as I've shown in the book on on on, in, on several pages, even when he before he supposedly became a Christian in 1979, Hanegraaff admitted that he wanted to have money and power. He craved to have a lot of money, and so he used CRI as his personal ATM machine. I mean, the guy is making in excess of $400,000, him and his wife, because she's supposed to be the head of yeah, public relations. Yeah, what now, exactly does she do? She makes eighty grand. What does Kathy Hanegraaff do? Well, I don't think anybody's ever able to figure that out, because when, when I was working on the book, I talked to people, and they said she was never around. You know, if she was doing PR work, she was doing it from her home, because she had, you know, she had like eight or nine kids or something. And but she never was in the office working. She was always doing it supposedly at home. So, you know, we don't really know how she worked or what she worked on. But this is what she was supposed to be doing. But, you know, between that and and the, uh, you know, I'm sure he has an expense account. So he probably has another, you know, hundred. I've heard it, it's it's closer to six hundred thousand now because my book when it came out it was about four hundred thousand. Jay, we talked about how Hanegraaff stole CRI. Uh, apparently, even before he came on to CRI, he began his ministry career with a ripoff. You've inter interviewed D. James Kennedy, and apparently Hanegraaff stole from him as well. Why don't you explain that? Yeah. Uh, I, I interviewed um, D. James Kennedy in, in uh, 2000 uh, because at that time, uh, Hanegraaff was going on the radio and claiming that D. James Kennedy was an astrologer and trying to you know mess up. Uh, D. James Kennedy's ministry career by claiming that he was a heretic and, a, and an astrologer. So uh, I, I called Hanegraaff's office and set up an interview with him, and because it became pretty clear at that time that um, Hanegraaff had stolen or plagiarized material from what's called Evangelism Explosion, which is um, uh, sort of the opus work of, of D. James Kennedy back in the 60s. And or seventy, I think. And so um, I called D. James Kennedy's office and talked to him for ten minutes, and we talked about how um, you know this, he knew about the plagiarism. He was very concerned about it. He wasn't going to sue him. He wasn't going to take him to court because Christians don't sue Christians. He told me, which is pretty biblical. Yeah, First Corinthians six. Yeah, and so uh, but but and Hanegraaff knew that that he knew about it, and he tried to you know he met him at a at a rest no at a at a hotel one time. And sort of, kind of, a bit, little bit pleaded with him not to, you know, do anything, you know. And and uh, Kennedy told him, "Don't worry, I'm not going to sue you. I'm not going to make a big deal out of this." But he was, you know, he was, uh, you know, uh, Hanover, or, I mean, uh, Kennedy was routinely being 
sent copies of of the PWT, comparing it to e, e That's material. personal witness training. Yeah, personal witness training, and that's Hanegraaff's material, and it was really close. Now, uh, Rob Bowman back in '95 did a uh, you know a point by point comparison, which I replicate. I think most of it in my book. And just to remind and, the listeners, Rob Bowman was the CRI employee who actually wrote the CRI perspectives. Right. Now, um, so he went. He did this point by point comparison. To show that the uh, you know plagiarism was real, and it really was. I mean, it's so blatant that uh, it, it it could not have been just a, a coincidence, you know. And uh, so yeah, he was he was he's written several books, but they were always been written by a committee or by other people. He being Hanegraaff. Hanegraaff, and he put his name on it. So yeah, you know uh, the that guy just, that that that's extremely interesting, Jay, because I'm not the biggest fan of Hanegraaff's books, but the one that I actually did like was Christianity in Crisis, and it turns out that's written by a committee. Yeah, CRI uh, staffers. Yeah, CRI staffers. Perry, one of the objections that you and I continually encounter when we speak negatively about Hank Hanegraaff is that Hanegraaff is a genius with an encyclopedic knowledge of the faith. But you, Perry from your experience at CRI, have actually been in the studio during the recording of the BAM radio show. BAM, of course, stands for Bible Answer Man. You've seen what actually goes on behind the scenes. Why don't you tell us about the radio magic and sleight of hand that makes Hanegraaff look so look and sound so good? Yeah, some of this is, is confirmed by other former employees like Mike Stevens and others who work in the radio engineering department, so it's not just my word. There are multiple eyewitnesses to this. When Hanegraaff came to CRI, in his own words, as he expressed in the recent interview with Frank Beckwith, he really knew nothing about cults or apologetics. So he had to crib from the other employees who actually had degrees, because to be a researcher, you actually had to have earned degrees, at least a bachelor's degree to be even considered for hiring. It had to be a bachelor's degree in a relevant field. So what people have to understand about the BAM show is first, now that Hanegraaff's been doing this for 25 years, he's gotten better at this kind of facade. But generally, he has a number of tools. He only answers about five to six questions per hour. He has uh, a call screener, of course. And so he can screen out all the hard questions that he's really not qualified to answer. Uh, he also has about a 10-second delay or at least he did when I was there, because it gets shot up over satellite. So he so can, du he, he can dump a call if it goes bad then? Yes, he can. He can just turn down the volume and make it seem like he's answering the person and the person doesn't have anything further to say, and then be like, okay, I hope that helps. Now we're on to the next question. These are tools that he uses. Now, he has a computer in the desk, which he uses for caller ID, but also... Uh, to look up information. When BAM first, when he first started on BAM, there was no computer there. So there were other employees from the research department, such as Erwin DeCastro, who was a junior researcher, who would literally feed Hanegraaff text to read from, um, from other people's work or, uh, standard statements for CRI in a particular issue. Now, I was, not very old, but I had done enough apologetics to realize that if you're doing this, you're really not qualified. 
And then on top of that, Hanegraaff is just making all kinds of egregious historical and theological mistakes. Uh, initially, he kept talking about three separate persons in the Trinity. That was one. Uh, he couldn't put major historical events within five centuries. If you can't nail down the Crusades of the Inquisition within 500 years, you probably don't know what you're talking about. So what happened was, is whenever Hank would make a major screw-up, the BAM show for that day would become mysteriously unavailable. Because there were, the error was so bad and it took up so much time that they just couldn't edit it out of the tape that would then be purchased for distribution you know, to the public. So, so it, just went down the, it just went down the George Orwell memory hole, in other words. Right, exactly. So what people are seeing in the show is not reality. It's a facade. Uh, he has no earned degrees in any field, not plumbing, not HVAC. He has no earned degrees. He has three years at Calvin College, I believe, as an undergraduate, which he dropped out from. And he can't read the biblical languages. He has no competence in philosophy or church history. So it's all just a big show. It's, it's fakery. This is why he doesn't generally do debates. Because on a debate, you have to do a couple things. You have to construct an argument, present it, and respond on your feet. You have to be able to think through your opponent's objection right then and there. You don't get time to edit it out or hit the mute button. So the one debate he did with a Dallas Seminary graduate, which is on YouTube for viewing, was that he Mark, gets annihilated. Is that Mark Hitchcock, the eschatology debate? Yeah, that's the Hitchcock debate over, over Revelation. And you can see Hanegraaff about two-thirds of the way through becomes visibly angry and starts lashing out at people in the audience because he's losing the debate really bad, uh, which is really not professional and not somebody with his supposed stature should be doing. Was Hanegraaff really Walter Martin's hand-picked successor? Or why does Hank make over $250,000 a year? Why did he fire so many key people after he took over in 1989? Why did C or I buy him a $66,000 Lexus sports car in 2004? Is Hanegraaff's personal witness training a plagiarism of Evangelism Explosion by D. James Kennedy? Did Hanegraaff actually plagiarize D. James Kennedy's Evangelism Explosion for his own personal witness training? Next, let's hear from well-known minister Dr. D. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries in Florida about this issue. I began to get numerous uh, letters from people telling me that he had been attacking me again on several more occasions on his radio program. He has been doing this off and on for the last three or four years and has attacked me in books and on tapes and uh, his magazine. I have made it a position over 42 years of ministry that though I would take on the atheists and the agnostics and the cultists and the pagans and the humanists and the evolutionists that I never would uh, attack fellow evangelical believers. And so uh, I had called him one time trying to get him to uh, not do that, but he continued to, to do it and apparently is increasing that attack. And so I finally simply wrote a letter to the people 
that uh, had responded, ha had sent me letters telling me that he was attacking me, tried to explain uh, what, why what he said wasn't the case. And apparently, and I'm not sure, but somebody said that they think that he took that and put it on the web and made it public and now is accusing me of attacking him, which is utterly absurd because I have been sitting here saying nothing for three or four years while he has continued this assault. When he was with us, he would then represent us to donors anywhere in the country, not just Atlanta. Uh, but when he left us and went to Atlanta, he no longer was. Okay, so um, there was no reason to, so he didn't just, he didn't have to, he, he didn't leave the EE program in Atlanta. He actually left that in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. That's correct. Okay. Best I remember. That's been, I don't know, 20 years or more ago. Sure. And now, when did you first hear about uh, Hank Hanegraaff's personal witnessing training program? The first time I ever heard of that is when I began to get letters from people telling me that he had, uh, that Hanegraaff had uh, plagiarized my book, Evangelism Explosion, which is the basis of the whole evangelistic, EE, uh, uh, e. Evangelism Explosion ministry all over the world and that he had come up with uh, a very, very similar uh, program, and I guess that's what he called it, and it was till people began to send me uh, a page of his book and a page of my book right next to it, another page of his, a page of mine, and on and on, that uh, I had ever seen it or even heard of it, and uh, they were wanting me. I, I had all kinds of people saying, you really ought to sue this man for plagiarism, and uh, I said then what I have always said, I don't think that's what Christians ought to do. I don't think we're supposed to sue other Christians. And I met him one time at a, at a hotel somewhere, I don't remember when or where, and he was trying to explain to me how, how this wasn't really plagiarism. And, uh, and I said to him, Hank, look, forget it, don't worry about it. I have no intention of suing you. I don't believe Christians ought to sue other Christians. So just forget about it. And uh, so that was my uh, my experience with that. Now, do you have a sense of how many years ago it was? I mean, when you first started hearing about this new um, PWT program? Oh, gee, I don't know. Was it uh, 10, 12? 10, 12. I don't know. When did, he, when did he publish it? I don't remember. Well, it's been out um, since he was in Atlanta, because that's when he first started developing it. Well... You know, it could have been longer than that. I, okay. I don't know. I don't know when I started hearing about it. When people began to write me letters and tell me about it. Other than that, I'd never heard of it. Now, um, <clears throat> Christian Research Institute and Hank Hanegraaff claims that you gave um, um, Mr. Hanegraaff permission to use evangelism explosion materials to uh, for the development of the personal witnessing training program, uh, either verbal or written uh, authorization. Did you ever do this? No, that is just not the case. Uh, in fact, the matter is, I did, at his request, take it to the board and ask them if they wanted to get uh, involved with doing uh, something like this, and uh, they turned it down. And if I had given him permission, I would ask at that hotel that time, why would he have so belabored the point that this really wasn't plagiarism? Now, I had... Uh, I think I had seen the pages set side by side. I never even made an investigation on my own to 
get a hold of it or anything, but sent people that sent me the copy of the pages. And since there was such a startling uh, uh, comparison between the two, you know, I, why was he trying so hard to convince me that this wasn't plagiarism when he could have said to me, well, Jim, you know, this is what I've come up with, and since you gave me permission to use your book any way I wanted, uh, I guess you'll recognize the large segments of this coming from your book. He never said that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he kept saying it wasn't plagiarism. Now, apparently, he's saying it was, but he had permission from me. As we have heard in the Perry Robinson testimony, Hanegraaff covered for numerous heretical groups just because it was financially beneficial to his so-called ministry. I myself remember when Hanegraaff was covering for former members of Herbert W. Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God as no longer being a cult, when in fact they still were despite changing a few doctrines. Hanegraaff also went against Walter Martin's stand against the Witness Lee and the local church cultism. Listen to Walter Martin himself speak about this group at the link indicated here. Did you see the local church ad in yesterday's paper? Yeah, I did. And I've already stated my opinion on it, and I'm not going to get into it again. My opinion is unvaried. We ought to pray for the local church. We ought to pray for Witness Lee and for the people that surround him. We ought to love them for Christ's sake and avoid their teachings like the plague that it is. And we should not permit ourselves to get involved in argumentation with them. They are looking for arguments. They are dying to have me take out a half-page ad to answer their harebrained theology. And I have no intention of doing it. Just keep one thought in your mind. Every source they quote, which allegedly disproves what we believe, is quoted from people who disagree with them. All they've done is taken them out of context and made it look as if that's the truth. It isn't. The time will come when the truth will be known. In the meantime, Christians should just pray for them and avoid them. Witness Lee's cult will have to be judged by the Holy Spirit. Besides all this, numerous Christian ministers, seminarians, theologians, professors, apologists have disagreed with Anagraph's protection of this Witness Lee heretical cult group such as can be seen here in this open letter which is posted online at http colon double slash www.open-letter.org A theological letter like this from dozens of Christian scholars exposes the magnitude of what kind of theological idiot Hanegraaff really is in regard to essential Bible doctrine. As the viewers at home can see, this open letter written to the leadership of Living Stream Ministry and the local churches outlines some of the essential theological differences that Orthodox Christianity has with Witness Lee's cult group. One is on the very nature of God himself, as you can see there, on the nature of God. Then we see further down the page, on the nature of humanity. And then you have the on the on the next page on the legitimacy of evangelical churches and denominations. And then down near the bottom on lawsuits with evangelical Christians. And then here you have all of the various signers 
most of which are PhDs in their theological fields. And uh, Hanegraaff then would obviously disagree with all these people. Hank Hanegraaff really does not deserve to be the president. He was never meant to be the president. And his need to uh, squeeze money out of people is becoming an apparent problem, which has really been going on over the last nine or ten years. But again, since his uh, taking over in 1989, it's been shown, you know, clearly here that uh, he has changed the vision of CRI. A lot of the things that uh, were talked about, Walter Martin being the president uh, of the paper of the of the CRI Journal, that's been taken out. The fact that uh, you can barely even he- find any mention of him on his own website any longer, Walter Martin's website. The idea that um, uh, even though he he talked in, in glowing terms at his funeral, he no longer even hardly mentions Walter Martin as the president of CRI. So again, we just see that Hank Hanegraaff was really never was intended to be the president of CRI. These scandals kind of show that the true heart of the man, he, he really does not belong at this helm of this ministry. It is interesting that while I was making this report known throughout the country by way of our national mailing list, and I was getting a lot of requests for it as a result, I got a call one day from an underling who worked at Hanegraaff's outfit. He asked me to stop distributing my Matthew 18 lawsuit report about Hanegraaff. I told him I would if Hanegraaff were to provide me with evidence that he could refute all the allegations against him. The underling told me he would within a few weeks, so in the meantime, I promised to stop making it available. After waiting almost a month and never getting anything from Hanegraaff, I went right back to making the report available. I concluded from that experience that CRI does not keep their promises. What's interesting here is what Walter Martin's own family says about Hank Hanegraaff. And as you can see there in the paperwork before you, Walter Martin's family urges Hank Hanegraaff to step down as head of CRI. Hank Hanegraaff has been asked to step down from his post as president of the Christian Research Institute, CRI, by family members of Dr. Walter Martin, who founded the organization in 1960. A majority of Martin's family members signed a statement asking Hanegraaff to resign. Walter Martin's eldest daughter, Jill Martin Reshi, is a lead critic. A statement calling on Hanegraaff to resign as CRI's president has been signed by Rishi and her husband, as well as other members of Martin's family, including his children, Daniel, Elaine, and Debbie, and Walter Martin's widow, Darlene. For more documentation concerning Hank Hanegraaff and CRI, see the Facebook group called Walter Martin, the Original Bible Answer Man, run by Walter Martin's eldest daughter, Jill Martin Reshi. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.